Welcome to the 184th episode of the Reading and Writing Podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Rutherford. Stay tuned for my interview with Lindsay Fay, author of the historical thriller novel, The Fatal Flame. Stay tuned for the interview. Welcome back to the Reading and Writing Podcast. My guest today is Lindsay Fay. Fay is the author of the historical thriller novels, Gods of Gotham, Dust and Shadow, and Seven for a Secret. Her latest novel, The Fatal Flame, has just been published. Lindsay, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Great. Well, can you read a couple of pages from your new novel, The Fatal Flame? Definitely. Yeah, I'd be happy to. <clears throat> Spoiler free, so I'll start with the prologue. Great. Dama Odufai, as she had been called in the green mother country, where the rocks pierced the grasslands the way gaunt collarbones pierced the peaceful slumbering corpses in the streets, recalled what it felt like to be hungry, to long for thick brown bread with salt, to taste pipe smoke on her tongue as if it were solid charred beef, to find mushrooms in a tree stump and sell them for whiskey, not out of recklessness, but because mushrooms could barely touch her appetite while a pint of whiskey might help her forget her ravenous belly for an entire day, with care, maybe two. Dunla Duffy, as they called her, in New York City, remembered Ireland with a fondness that lingered like the mists, which used to flinch away from the doorstep of her hovel when the stern sun rose, because Dunla Duffy wasn't hungry anymore. These days, Dunla was starving. When I was a younger version of Timothy Wilde, not Copper Star 107 of the New York City Police Department, but a kinchin running feral through the streets. I knew hungry like I knew my own name. But I've never known starving. And if my brother Valentine had never done me a single other good turn in his mad life, that would have been enough. He did more for me than that, of course. But if I get ahead of myself, I'll never manage to put any of this on paper. Just before dawn, on the day we met, Donla and I, she sat in the corner of a ground floor chamber in Pell Street, listlessly hemming ankle cuffs in the rented room she shared with other malls who did manufactory outwork in their living quarters. Trousers were heaped into ziggurats throughout the room, waiting for the brutal sunrise and for the women to rouse themselves. Both the workers and their wares were on the splintering floor, furniture being a luxury. Both were, by Manhattan standards, worthless, because the year was 1848, and the British Isles hadn't glimpsed a potato that wasn't blackly leprous since 1845. At daybreak, others like Dunmo would arrive. Such women were similar to the piles of garbage heaped on our street corners. No one wanted to look at them, and there would be more the next day. You thief, snarled Crone's voice from the opposite corner. Dunmo, distracted by a rash that had recently bloomed along her limbs like frenzied spring wildflowers, didn't reply. You're a thief. The room's 12 other residents stirred fitfully at the noise. Dunla managed with an effort she found frankly unfair to raise her head. As Dunla informed us later, she was 14 years old. Her huge eyes stood out pale green from straggling locks of equally green and greasy hair framing her round face. She'd once owned pale copper trusses and couldn't quite recollect how they'd faded to the color of rotting corn silk. I worked out the mystery of her seaweed bright curls for myself eventually, of course, as I have a tendency to unravel puzzles for all the meager good it does my acquaintances. Dunla did remember that with her sweetly, bl sweetly blank expression and her unnerving eyes, the villagers had given her wary glances when she was a child. 
But her mother had once lifted her high in the air toward the full silver moon and called Dunla her brightest light, brighter even than the Gaelic non about their heads. Whenever Dunla's imagination attempted to reproduce fresh butter and failed, she thought about being someone's moon. Dunla, to be truthful, because Christ knows the tale is too grim to be anything but true, was simple, but she managed in spite of the fact. The moon seems far off and all, she told me on the day she watched my heart break, but the tide still comes in. Don't it now? From Benla, I learned that people, like deities, can move in mysterious ways. Great. Well, if someone listening hasn't heard about The Fatal Flame yet, how would you describe your new novel? It's the third in the Timothy Wilde trilogy, and Timothy Wilde is essentially... I set out to write day one, cop one of the NYPD. I had, um, you know, everyone loves books like The Alienist, right? Caleb Carr, all Mm -hmm. of of these wonderful sort of end of the 19th century, 1890s, 1910s, sort of, you know, Teddy Roosevelt era, um, late Victorian period, uh, uh, even though calling it Victorian kind of doesn't really apply to America. (laughs) But anyway, (laughs) but uh, so I had seen... I had seen and read so many of these, and I, I just I love them. But I had never um, I had never read a book that was about um, how the police were formed the very first year, and that turns out to have been 1845. And New York City already had a population of 400,000 people before we had a police force. So I found that fascinating, and I, you know, I just delved into the research. And the Gods of Gotham is really about the founding of the police. The um, sequel, Seven for a Secret, continues that story, and the Fatal Flame. Um, the thread in the fatal flame is that um, the main thrust of the of the narrative is it's about the very first manufactory workers um, and women who were beginning to work outside the home. Um, it's 1848. It's the same year as the Seneca Falls, um, the first uh, female rights convention was held, and women were um, in a very interesting position during that time period because they were supposed to be um, wholly domestic and, you know, kind of decorative. But uh, if, if you were unfortunate enough um, to lose your, your father or your, or your husband or your, you know, um, if, if you did not have male support, um, then your choices were basically either to, you know, find male support again or um, starve <laughs> because there were no, um, there were no jobs in place for women other than, other than um, doing this um, manufacturing work and, and sewing work. And women were beginning to want fair wages for that. And they were beginning to strike as early as 1837. So uh, the fatal flame is essentially about an, a serial arsonist who is um, starting to set fires to, um, to some of the really low tenements in New York City, and it is all about labor, and it's all about um, women in the workplace, and this was a very unheard of practice at the time um, for women to be going out and, and working at, at jobs that weren't, you know, on the family farm, that weren't within the home. Um, so, yeah, it was, a, it was a really interesting time period, and um, and that is essentially the thread of the narrative is, you know, about the seamstresses decades and decades before triangle shirtwaist ever happened. Right. Right. And that's, that's the most famous fire that everyone remembers. Sure. And that was much later. Yeah. Right. Right. Um, so I, I'm curious, I mean, you, you, you talked about um, the alienist and, and deciding to go back to, to the beginning. Um, had you always been interested in, in New York city history? 
Um, yeah, I, to a certain extent. I mean, I think I've always been interested in history in, in, in the broad sense, definitely, mm-hmm. because, um, because as a kid, you know, I grew up reading Sherlock Holmes. I grew up reading, you know, all these classics of, of British literature and, um, and Poe, you know, classics of American literature, too. But I always was really drawn to, um, to that period, and I found it, I found it fascinating. So I, I've lived in New York for 10 years now, and the city itself, I think, is just, it's fascinating. I mean, when, when my husband and I um, first moved here, we, we live in Queens now, but for nine years we lived um, north of Harlem in Washington Heights, and it's just, you know, the culture of the, of the city is fascinating. We lived like five blocks from uh, Trinity Cemetery, which is the place where George Washington Massel, who's the police chief in, um, in the Timothy Wilde trilogy, who's a real person and was the first police commissioner, he's buried there. He was buried like five blocks from my house. So it was kind of, you know, um, difficult not to become fascinated with New York City history living here. Sure, sure. And and what was the research process like? I mean, you, you, you've talked about uh, becoming interested and in wanting to, to set the trilogy at the beginning of the New York City police force. Uh, were you able to actually contact the NYPD and do, do they have historical documents that, that are available or, or what was your research process like? Well, yeah, it was it was actually pretty interesting. So, so no, I didn't contact the NYPD because the NYPD, I think, um, <laughs> they have a police museum, but it's it's sort of on again, off again, open, um, right. and it and it's it's quite small. But um, the city of New York has enormous benefits to the researcher. Anybody who wants to uh, walk into Bryant Park Research Library is going to find ridiculous amounts of data. So I primarily spent my time at um, two places. One was the New York Historical Society. And the New York Historical Society had all kinds of of books that um, are no longer in print um, that were written about the beginning of the... um, Police force. There's one by um, Costello that's interesting, um, but but remarkably little has been written. I think uh, in terms of historical, um, in terms of nonfiction books, remarkably little has been written about the beginning of the NYPD. So I was kind of starting from scratch. So at the at the New York Historical Society, um, I found that there was a diary. Um, it's by a fellow named Bell. He was a roundsman um, who, you know, walked around just on his beat um, in the, I believe it was early 1850s. So that was one of the earliest ones that I could find. His handwriting's completely atrocious, um, <laughs> but, his, but his diaries there at the um, New York Historical Society, and you just find these fascinating things. Like, you know, he, he reports stuff like uh, there's there's this sinkhole um, it, down in what would be today Chinatown, um, mm-hmm. near near the Five Points, and he's like, two people have died falling into this like pond. Oh my God. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> I know, and I know, and you're reading this, and you're like, really? <laughs> but but yeah, I I mean, it was pretty gritty stuff. And then the other thing that I found um, extraordinarily useful is um, the fact that at the New York Public Library, where I sort of, you know, um, spend, I, I tend to spend about six months researching a book before I start writing it. So I, I nurse my vitamin K deficiency down in the uh, microfilm department, because in the microfilm department, I can read all of the newspaper 
reports from the Herald newspaper going back. Like, I can just read through the year uh, in the Herald and what they were reporting on. So I can read, you know, it's not, it's not just the macrocosm of, of current events. It's the microcosms of the advertisements and, you know, the petty little grievances of people saying it's, it's so funny. I mean, it's still the same thing now, right? It's, a, it's like uh, in winter specifically, it's always been this way in New York. You have to, um, you're responsible for your own property shoveling snow on the sidewalk in front of your, if you own the property. Right. So there are people, you know, there are people in 1845, like, for God's sake, would you just shovel the snow? <laughs> it's, it's, I mean, I live in Queens now. I, I, we bought a house, so I know what shoveling snow is like. And, and I also know what it's like to walk to the subway when someone has not shoveled their snow, you know? So it's, it's interesting because you can, through these newspapers, I think, really get a, a flavor of, um, of what was going on. And right. I also consult diaries to a, to a large extent because diaries are very useful as well. Right. I was actually going to ask you, did, did the newspapers cover the, the founding of the police department? Not really, like Not shockingly really? little. Oh, wow. Interesting. Shockingly. I mean, I mean, they, they started, they started, um, they started dissing them quite quickly. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's another thing that still goes on. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. I mean, like very, I mean, they sort of covered, yes, that there's a police force now and it had previously been a, a system of night watchmen, um, which was just laughable. Um, they had leather helmets and it was all volunteer. And, um, and the, as a matter of fact, the fire department was volunteer for decades after the police force was starting to get paid, but people were very leery of a standing army. So even if they weren't widely reporting on the police being founded, they were quite quickly comparing them to Russian police. <laughs> <laughs> Interesting. So, yeah, they, so, they got irritated pretty quickly. So earlier you, you mentioned that it takes you about six months to research uh, before writing a book, I was going mm -hmm. to ask you what, what your writing and research process is like. So do you, do you have a plot kind of outline before you sit down and, and, and start your research or is it, does it happen simultaneously? What, what's that, what's that like for you? I think my plot and my research inform each other to a large extent because, um, well, here's a good example. People have often asked me, like, what led you to write this book set in 1845? I mean, it's fascinating. And the, the year, uh, that, that's the gods of Gotham. And so, of course, the fatal flame is, you know, the third in the in the trilogy. But um, they'll ask, oh, I mean, it's so interesting. It's the year the potato famine landed, and it's the year this great fire, this huge fire happened in New York City, and it's the year the police were founded. What led you to do that? And I'm like, well, I... I wanted to write about the first cops. So if the first cops had been founded in 1827, it would have been set in 1827. <laughs> and, if, and if the first cops had happened in 1855, it would have been set in 1855. Right, but, as right. it, but as it happens, it, it happened in 1845. So I, I think I have general overarching themes that I know I want to research when I set out to write a book. Um, the Gods of Gotham is largely about religious persecution of the Irish Catholics. Seven for a Secret, the sequel, is very, very largely about um, the kidnapping of free African-Americans um, who, it's essentially the other half of um, 
of Solomon Northrup's autobiography, um, 12 Years a Slave. It's mm-hmm. the other side of it. Uh, the people, the vigilance committees who are trying to keep this from happening to people. The Fatal Flame largely is about um, the birth of the feminist movement and about these very first seamstresses, like I was saying, decades before Triangle Shirtwaist. So I know the general gist of what I'm researching when I set out to do it. Um, often, I will find real historical events that make it into the books. Um, and people who um, are real, they'll just they'll wander in there because I, I, will find, I will find fascinating things in my research that, that do end up in the novels. And it's not just... I have these um, quotes from the time period at the beginning of all of my chapters because I, I find a lot of the attitudes um, are almost, you know, like too caricatured and unbelievable for people to swallow unless I'm actually quoting something. I'm like, no, look, <laughs> they really thought that. <laughs> like, look, look, I, I, I promise. But um, and this has happened in all of my novels. So, uh, so at the beginning of, of The Gods of Gotham, there's a woman who um, is suffering from postpartum depression, and, um, and she's actually doing sewing at work uh, at the beginning of The Gods of Gotham and, and kills her child in a, in a sort of... Um, um, she's hallucinating. She's, she's malnourished. She's, you know, um, just on the brink of despair, and she kills she kills her baby at the very beginning of The Gods of Gotham, and that was a real crime. Uh, that actually happened, and I used her name, her real name. Um, in Seven for a Secret, the Vigilance Committee, the gentlemen who populate the Vigilance Committee, uh, a couple of them are fictional, but most of them have real names of the people who actually um, founded uh, these, these, you know, um, just volunteer organizations of people of color to try to keep their community from being snatched up in the streets and in the fatal flame. Uh, the early feminist movement, <clears throat> there's a lot that's been written about Seneca Falls, but I found in the Herald newspaper this account of a, um, <laughs> it's a random little police account of a, of a woman who was uh, arrested. She, oh, I, she was cited for sure. I think that, I think that they took her into custody and then they let her go quite quickly with a fine, but she was arrested for wearing trousers. She was cross-dressing at the time. Um, and she, it was public indecency that they charged her with wearing men's clothing. And so I read this in the newspaper for the, for the, that same year. And then I essentially based an entire character on her in the fatal flame. And her name is Sally Woods. Who's one of my favorite booksellers, (laughs) by the way. (laughs) Um, she works for murder by the book in Houston, Texas. But I, um, I based, Sally Woods on her and Sally Woods is at the time a cross dresser and you know, she wears trousers and it's shocking. It's just it, in the 1840s, everyone is shocked by this. And they, even her friends are thinking you're setting the feminist movement back. <laughs> you look like, you look like a crazy person. And you know, she just, she doesn't care. It's important to her that she wears what she wants. That's so great. I, you know, I pick these little, so the research part of it, yeah, I pick, I pick and choose things that, um, that really happened and then they, they make their way into the books. That's great. Well, you, you, you've talked about the early, uh, years of the, the police force. I, I wonder in your research about fires and firefighting in New York, mm-hmm. uh, history, were there any details or discoveries about that that surprised you? Oh, well, I mean, the the firefighting force, it was fascinating, just absolutely fascinating. And, you know, just 
everything you picture in gangs of New York with like, you know, ridiculously wonderful mustaches and people punching each other in the face. <laughs> I mean, these fire these fire departments, it was all volunteer forever, right? So Valentine Wilde, the um the brother of um the narrator in the Timothy Wilde trilogy, he's a volunteer firefighter, um, partly due to profound guilt over um an accidental fire that he set when he was very young, and partly due to the fact that um, this was a really necessary task. <clears throat> this was something that was very, I mean, could you imagine New York City? It's, it's all, it's it's not quite as stone as it as it is now, and you know, there's a bunch there's a bunch of wood structures, and they're all next to each other, and the minute one of them goes up, everything goes up, right, in flames, yep. and it was. It's amazing. These people, the firemen were gods. I mean, they were just absolutely adored by the public. And even when the firemen deeply misbehaved, (laughs) the public, the public still forgave them because these are the people who are running into burning buildings, rescuing people. And at a certain point when Tammany got really corrupt, you have, well, Tammany was, pretty corrupt from the beginning, let's be, let's be real here. <laughs> but but when it got egregiously corrupt, I mean you've got you've got some fire gangs that are that are they were gangs. I mean they were essentially gangs. And and they had their firehouses, they had the boss of the firehouse and then and then they would it was a point of pride to be the the firehouse that put out the fire, right? So there mm-hmm. were there were people who would you had like front runners who would who would go to the scene of the fire and like take a barrel and sit on the water pump until their team got there so <laughs> so that nobody else could put could out the it. fire <laughs> exactly <laughs> i mean this is kind of some of this is apocryphal but but a lot of it is true and <clears throat> I mean, these are brass knuckle gang people who, you know, they had rivalries with other firehouses, et cetera, et cetera. But even when, even when Tammany got really egregiously nasty and some of the fire departments who were running in to put out the fires were also stealing stuff, (laughs) like, oh, we'll put out your fire, but I like this lamp, you know? (laughs) And And there were people who worked for these volunteer fire departments who occasionally would, you know, take, take some stuff. Even then, even then, as opposed to the police department, which was roundly vilified from the beginning, um, the firefighters, they were always, they were always really respected because of the fact that they saved so many lives. I mean, they really did. Even when they were, even when they were rowdy, even, even when they were brutal, um, these are people who are willing to, you know, um, save the city over and over and over again. And, um, it was a fascinating culture. Yeah. I, I found out all kinds of, all kinds of cool stuff about the fire department and the fire, the fire museum is actually much better equipped than the police museum here in, in New York. So, um, yeah, there's, there's a lot of information there. That's great. Well, well, what, what is your path? What was your path to becoming a writer, uh, before your first book was published? Did you always want to write and, and what led you to writing that first novel? Oh, this is a crazy story. <laughs> 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 no, it is. Um, so I grew up loving books because my parents, um, love books. And so they were reading to me from when I was, wee. I was reading like Shakespeare when I was 10, that kind of stuff. So I just always loved good stories. 
And um, I, when I went to, I, I went to high school that had a great English teacher and a great drama department. So I was always really interested in acting and I had this brilliant teacher in high school for advanced placement English and for a bunch of other English classes I took. His name is Jim Lamond. And for the AP English class, he, he called it five easy pieces and he always did, he always did, you know, his best Jack Nicholson when he he was (laughs) describing this class. Five easy pieces meant that during the semester for AP English, what we had to do was write five things. The trick was that there were no due dates and they weren't finished until he said they were. So we did about eight drafts of each of the pieces, the five easy pieces, and he taught us how to self-edit, which was amazing. He taught everyone in these classes how to go through your own work and make it better. And I don't think that's a skill that a lot of people teach in high school, but, um, but Jim Lamond is brilliant. So he taught us all how to do that. And even by the time you got through a draft of it, it might not get an A, <laughs> but, <laughs> but, but you would have you know, done this whole editorial process with it. So fast forward to college and I couldn't give up either of them. So I was a double major in performance and in English. And after college, I worked for about 10 years as an actor, and they actually paid me money to sing and act on stage. It was bizarre. <laughs> <laughs> I, 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 um, I'm still in the union. I mean, I'm kind of proud of that. Like, I, I actually, you know, I did it <laughs> a little bit. Um, and I didn't, I didn't get all that far, but I got, I got into the union, and I got some great gigs, and I worked with a lot of Broadway people, and, you know, I... I was really happy doing that for a while, but you don't really feel like you have any autonomy and um, you are constantly out of work and you're constantly auditioning and you're constantly saying, okay, well, am I good enough? You know, you're just walking into rooms over and over again. Right. I was not smart. I was not smart enough to put on my own work or start my own theater company and cast all your friends in it, do something like, you know, step in, like there's, there's all kinds of examples of how this actually, you know, like is a much better idea (laughs) (laughs) to put your own stuff together and then, you know, start doing, start doing black box things. And, you know, I just, I wasn't smart enough. I just, I was auditioning constantly and I didn't have a lot of autonomy and I was getting very discouraged. And of course I was working in restaurants that whole time. So the restaurant I was working at, um, it got forced out because it was in the meatpacking district and that, District of New York has really vastly changed since it packed meat. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> um, now it's all Stella McCartney and you know, ridiculousness. But they were going to turn this beautiful space I was working at in this restaurant into um, an Apple store, <laughs> which is what's there now, uh. which is a much better amount of rent, I imagine, for the people who actually own the own the land. So I was out of work. And I have always loved Sherlock Holmes. Um, Since I first started reading Sherlock Holmes, it was one of those things where I started reading Sherlock Holmes and I never stopped (laughs) reading Sherlock Holmes. Like I had read the original 60 stories about a kajillion bajillion times at this point. And, you know, it was a big part of my life. And my dad and I and my mom and my brother, we all watched the Jeremy Pratt series, the Granada stuff when I was, you know, coming out in the 90s. We were totally Sherlock Holmes obsessed. So I pick up this book, and it is a Sherlock Holmes and Jack the Ripper pastiche. Mm-hmm. And it is, um, it's quite 
well written and I'm just I'm just looking at it. This is on one of my breaks on like possibly the last day I'm working at this restaurant. And it's not that dramatic, but you know, it was toward the end. And I'm I'm reading it on my on my break because I was working a double that day and I am just flipping through it and I'm like interesting because it was Sherlock Holmes, Jack the Ripper, and a Transylvanian Satanist cult. <laughs> and I was like, yes, of course. They lived in caves. Mm-hmm. Yep. <laughs> so I'm, re- I'm reading through this, and I, I had had this opinion for a while, but, um, but most Sherlock Holmes, Jack the Ripper stuff has what I call kitchen sink syndrome, mm-hmm. where you've got Sherlock Holmes, you've got Jack the Ripper, but Freemasons also. Or you've got Sherlock Holmes, Jack the Ripper, and the royal family, of course. Or you've got Sherlock Holmes, Jack the Ripper, and a cult of Transylvanian Satanists living underground in caves. <laughs> so um, I asked myself the question, uh, why do you need to add these kitchen sink elements <laughs> To a Sherlock Holmes, Jack the Ripper narrative, wouldn't it? Isn't it scary enough? I asked myself that the serial killer was wandering around murdering a bunch of people pre-Freud. There was like no precedent for this. There had been serial killers in London previously, but never ones that were reported by the gutter press and by and you know like the information devoured by a fairly literate uh, populace. The way. Jack the Ripper, you know, I mean, this, this was unprecedented levels of, um, of just newspaper fodder. Right. Right. And every, and everyone was terrified and everyone was using these murders for their own political, to argue their own political opinion. So I'm looking at this and I'm like, what if someone wrote a Sherlock Holmes, Jack the Ripper novel that completely respected Ripperologist point of view with the, you know, like all of the, what if, what if all of the evidence that's presented in a Sherlock Holmes, Jack the Ripper novel were real? What if it were the Caleb Carr, the alienist version, essentially of hunting a serial killer during this time period when you had no idea that you had no idea how to find this person. And obviously they they didn't (laughs) unless, (laughs) Um, unless something uh, something went down along the lines of, of you know him being secretly killed or you know found by the police, but um, but all evidence suggests that you know it, the murders they simply stopped. We're never going to know who Jack the Ripper was, um, and anybody who argues otherwise is probably wrong. <laughs> so I uh, I had never seen that book, and in an act of enormous hubris, <laughs> I decided. <laughs> I decided I would write it myself. So uh, I had a couple things going for me. I first of all, like I was saying, I, I had I had been reading the Doyle mysteries for just over and over again forever. Uh-huh. And secondly, I was trained as an actor, so I was I was professionally trained as a mimic. <laughs> like I can mimic people. I mean, I can do I can do like you know six or seven pretty solid accents. I maybe as many as 10 if I'm in practice. So <clears throat> I, and this is just from the British Isles. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I, uh, I, when I set out to write it, I quite quickly was 
pretty happy with the fact that I, I thought that I could, I could actually get the voice right. Um, and that's, uh, that's something that it's very important to pastiches. And, you know, it's just a lot of love was poured into it. And I didn't think it was ever going to see the light of day other than I thought, well, maybe a, a Sherlock, a Sherlockian small press will print this. I thought, mm, you know, I mean, people love Sherlock Holmes stuff. I'm putting a lot of research into this. I've been trained in dramatic three-act structure. I've read a lot of books. I, you know, I, I'm trying to get this right. So maybe I thought to myself, some Sherlockian, you know, um, publisher will print this. Right. So, <laughs> so they knocked down the restaurant to build an Apple store and I have six months unemployment and I finished the thing because I thought I'll never have another opportunity to do this. Why, why not do it? I'm unemployed. I am looking definitely for gainful employment. However, I should at the same time finish this book, finish the book. And then I applied all the methods my high school English teacher (laughs) thought of. And I did like, Oh God, I must've done, I must've done. I think I did like five drafts of that book, maybe more before anyone ever saw it. Like I was going through with all of these systems, you know, that they, that he had taught us of how to make the thing better. So, you know, I kept going through it and doing draft after draft. So I polished it like crazy. And then I wrote it. And then I, (laughs) I seriously, I went to Barnes and Noble and I went to the, you know, um, the writing section and I, I picked up a book, like how to, write a query letter. And I was like, okay, (laughs) (laughs) this is ridiculous though. Right. So then I, nobody, nobody gets published like this. I know it's, it's completely insane. So then I, I read a how to book sitting there on the floor in Barnes and Noble on the carpet of how to write a query letter. And I'm like, okay, I can do that. So, (laughs) So I go home, I write the query letter. And then I thought, just for fun, why don't you send this to a bunch of agents? That'll be neat. So I write the query letter, then I polish it like crazy again. <laughs> the same way I was polishing the book. And I got a ridiculous amount of responses from agents, and I was shocked. And then wow. I, yeah, I mean, it, but it's very high concept, right? It's Sherlock Holmes, Jack the Ripper, but gritty, right. right? Because Sherlock Holmes, Jack the Ripper had been done countless times before. I mean, look at, even in film, I mean, look at um, a study in terror and murder by decree came out something like, what were they within six, seven years of each other? I mean, a study in terror is what, 69, something like that. And then murder by decree is uh, the Christopher Plummer one is like mid seventies, something like that. And then you've got, you've got, um, it's not only the film ones. I mean, you've got all of these just countless books, Sherlock Holmes, Jack the Ripper, because it makes perfect sense. I mean, Sherlock Holmes was, this is before Reichenbach. This is before all of the Moriarty stuff, 1888. I mean, this is, he's still a young dude. Like if Sherlock Holmes wasn't investigating the Ripper murders, who was, I mean, give me a break. It's it's kind of, it's right there, you know, but like my version of it was very just dark. (laughs) I guess I'm going (laughs) to put it that way. So it's, it was high concept enough for people to be like, okay, the elevator pitch in, in this query letter is really easy. Sherlock Holmes, Jack the Ripper in the style of the alienist done. Like, you know, you can say that quite quickly. So, um, so what happened was I get these responses back and I'm shocked. And then I signed up with writer's house, which is an amazing agency. 
And I am working at another restaurant by then. But I walked in and I was like, guys, I just got an agent, a literary agent. Wow. People were like, what? (laughs) (laughs) And I'm like, yeah. And I'm wearing, you know, I'm wearing this ridiculous, like, you know, just black pants and a button up. It's a steakhouse, right? So, like, we all have to dress like men for some reason. Bizarre. You know, you've got the beige button up, uh, uh, you know, shirt and then this you know, black apron and I'm walking around and I'm like, guys, I got a literary agent. And they're like, whoa, <laughs> because people in the restaurant business are actually the best people in the entire world because all of us are doing something else. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and, and if you're not doing something else and you just want to be in the hospitality business, those are also the best people. So like, yeah. you know, it's, just, it's great people in the restaurant world. So I get this literary agent and I'm still working at the steakhouse, working, working, working. And a couple months later, no, I guess it was maybe more like a month. My my brand new agent sells the manuscript to Simon and Schuster, and he calls me. I was at work. He was like, "No, I was just off work. I went to the bookstore across the street. There was a Barnes and Noble there at the time. Oh no, at Borders. Excuse me. God, that's sad. <laughs> there was a Borders across <laughs> the street. I was in the Borders, and he's like." I, you should sit down. And I'm like, why? (laughs) I just, uh, sold your book to Simon and Schuster for six figures. And I was like, Oh, (laughs) (laughs) and it was crazy. It was completely crazy. And I went back to the restaurant and I told everyone and we had some champagne and I quit. (laughs) (laughs) And, uh, and I am, I'm just extraordinarily lucky to be able to do this, but that was, that was the first experience. And I, I really, I want to tell it exactly like it was not in a humble, not in like a humble brag way, but in a sense, no, it's, I it's want a great everyone story. to know. I just want everyone to know that if, if you don't have, if you didn't go to Yato, you know, like <laughs> if you, if you didn't go to Yale, if you, you know, I've never been to a writer's retreat, if you've never taken a creative writing class, I've never taken a creative writing class. Um, if you've, if you love something enough that you put a lot of passion and if you put a lot of work into it, and I, I always tell people I was extraordinarily lucky and I was, I was extraordinarily lucky and I still am lucky to be able to do this for an actual living. I mean, it's ridiculous. This is like, this is absurd. I tell people, you know, you go out to a bar, people are like, Oh, what do you do? I'm like, I'm a writer. And then they ignore you because they think you're a liar. (laughs) And then they're like, so you have a blog or something? And I'm like, no, I'm with Penguin Random House, GP Putnam. That's great. So yeah, anyone can do it. I mean, I just, I want people to know that if you, if you work hard enough at it, you can do it. Just That's do great. it, you know, sit down. So, so, so what, 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 what advice would you have for aspiring writers who may be listening, who would want, who would one day want to have their own novels published? Well, read constantly. I mean, I think that's big. That's, that's a huge thing. Read, read in the, if you like a particular genre and you want to write in a particular genre, read everything you can from that genre and just, you know, learn what other people are doing in it. I think that that's important. Um, and I agree with Neil Gaiman. Um, 
about almost everything. Neil is lovely, <laughs> but <laughs> he's a great guy. But uh, but I agree with him. He's he said recently he was at BAM down in Brooklyn. I think this was only like last week. But he was talking about how to be a writer, of course, you have to write. You have to sit down and write. But you also have to finish things. And I think that that's true. I think that I think that no matter how much practice you have at writing unfinished things, the act of finishing something is very important because until you finish something, you can't do what I did and go back and edit it and make it better. Um, so finishing things is very important. I mean, it's just sort of, I always say butt in chair. Just, you know, you have to sit down and you have to do the writing and then you have to come to the end of it and then you have to go back and rework it to make it better. Um, but anyone, anyone who has the drive, passion for books and, you know, um, willingness to work really, really hard at it can, can do what I have done because, um, and it, it should be, it should be a very egalitarian process. I think, I mean, I love Michael Shaben and Michael Shaben has this great nonfiction collection called maps and legends. And I quote it constantly, but his very first, essay in Maps and Legends is called Fan Fictions on Sherlock Holmes, and he's talking about how Pulitzer Prize winner Michael Shaben, author of The Amazing Adventures of Cavalier and Clay, etc., one of his first works when he was, like, I think he said he was 10 or something like that, was mm -hmm. he claims a terrible Sherlock Holmes pastiche. <laughs> and I bet it wasn't terrible. I bet it was awesome. But he was, you know, citing he was writing Sherlock Holmes stuff and he, and this essay is brilliant because he says all novels are sequels. And I think that's true to a large extent, because if you didn't love a book first, you would never sit down and write one. Um, if you weren't passionate about reading things, you would never, you would never have the drive or the balls <laughs> <laughs> to, sit down and write something like that yourself, you know, um, right. you have to be a reader first, I think. And, um, yeah, I would just say to anybody who wants to, who wants to write books, read constantly and finish things. And once you finish them, go back and make them better. Um, and show them to people, show them to people, get them, get feedback and just, you know, make them as good as they possibly can be because your first draft is always going to be total trash. But, but a first draft is better than no draft at all. I mean, my first drafts are ridiculous. I, I, the fatal flame, are you kidding me? So like, I had no idea when I was writing the fatal flame, whether or not it was the third book in a series of 10 or 12 or, you know, whatever, uh, Timothy Wilde books, or if it was the third in a trilogy. And I learned as I was writing it, that it was the third in a trilogy. It just, it made emotional sense. There was this complete arc to it. And that doesn't mean I'm never going to revisit this, these characters on the contrary, but one's narrated by Timothy. This, this is, you know, like this is the end of the trilogy. So I had no idea that this was the case while I was writing it. I was just waffling. It was ridiculous. So like, I don't have an outline when I set out to write. I often know, I guess I know what, what magicians call the prestige. I know what the hat trick is, right? I have mm -hmm. the card up my sleeve. I know what the, for instance, in the gods of Gotham, I, I think we can be fairly spoiler free saying sure. that, um, uh, in the gods of Gotham, it seems that there is a serial killer, which is not exactly the case. <laughs> so 
<laughs> so, uh, so, you know, you that, that one's been out, but I know that. Yes, exactly. Yeah. I knew that. And I knew, and I knew, um, uh, I knew what Valentine had, um, on his conscience, um, since they were children, um, in terms of the fire that he accidentally started that, that killed their parents. I knew that from the beginning. And in fact, I wrote that scene first, uh, you know, where he's telling Timothy what happened. But, um, I, what I don't know is, is all of the stuff in between, you know, and, and I often don't know who, <laughs> I, I know the hat trick, but I often don't know who did it. <laughs> like, <laughs> and so I'm like, I'm writing the fatal flame and I, oh man, it hit 150,000 words. Oh my God, it was awful. So like, just, just as an example, 150,000 words, God, that's ridiculous. So that's something along the lines. Of, so how did the Baskervilles? is a novel length Sherlock Holmes mystery. How many Baskervilles is 80,000 words? So just picture like double the length of Baskervilles of just, of just me trying to figure out who did it and whether or not this is the end of a trilogy or the third in a series of however many. Right. So, so, you know, like by the time you get to the end of that process and you just want to, and I, you know, I finished it and I just wanted to curl up in a sock drawer and sleep for the rest of my life. But, you know, like once you've got that finished, was that draft awful? Yes. <laughs> but, but it existed. So like once you've finished the draft, it's terrible. It doesn't matter how terrible it is. All you have to do at that point is go back into it and say, okay, now I'm going to fix it. Now I'm going to turn it into something that people actually might possibly pick up and want to read. So <laughs> yeah, that's the so, trick is to so you, finish things. Gotcha. So you fin you've talked a lot about reading. Are there uh, novels or nonfiction books that you've read recently that, that you would want to recommend that, that really um, made an impact on you? Sure. I mean, um, gosh, I, there are so many great books in the world. Um, oh, who's the author of the fair fight? The fair fight is outstanding. I just finished the fair fight. It's this great account of, um, it's a, it's a set in England in the 19th century, early 19th century, I believe. And it is about, um, Female boxers. Oh my God. So great. <laughs> I love it. The fair fight. I can't recall the author's name at the moment. Um, and I apologize. Okay. I, I love, um, I love everything Tana French puts out. Tana French is brilliant. Um, and her stuff is contemporary Irish, but, um, she's just lyrical and like really, really lovely prose. Um, I, there's a sort of trifecta of us, um, who write specifically uh, uh, historical historical mystery thrillers um, that sort of touch on uh, great literary characters um, from classic literature um, and and involve them in our plot. So uh, so the three of us. One of one of them is Matthew Pearl, and he's great. He wrote the Dante Club probably best known for that, but he just came out with a new one um, called The Last Book in Year, which deals with uh, Robert Louis Stevenson um, when he 
was living on an island, like in total isolation, um, towards the end of his life, uh, with his family and he went hardcore native. Um, so they're, they're hoping the Buccaneers, um, essentially it's about people who were trying to get their hands on manuscripts, essentially, um, uh, book sharks. Uh-huh. <laughs> and it's fascinating. Um, so that's brand new out from Matthew. Um, and the other, the other one of the two of us who we <laughs> all sort of, um, work in the same of is uh, Louis Bayard and Louis Bayard is he's outstanding. Um, just great. His first one, Mr. Timothy, I have no idea why more people have not read this. Um, everyone should read this book. It's, it's just, and then, and then just continue reading all of Louis books because they're awesome. <laughs> but Mr. Timothy is essentially a pastiche about the grown up Timothy Cratchit from a Christmas Carol. And he, there's a whole mystery thriller element. He's solving a crime, but, uh, but he's also getting over a lot of like emotional baggage from, <laughs> from being financially dependent on uncle Ebenezer. And, you know, apparently a lot of the stuff that he supposedly said that was angelic, his dad was just, Bob Cratchit was just making up. <laughs> so, <laughs> so he's got a lot of stuff to unpack, you know? Um, I love, love, love that book because it plays with, it plays with, you know, our perceptions of, of um, classic characters and that always, that always is great. Um, my friend Suzanne Rindle, other typist, is outstanding and she's got a new one that she is going through edits now. Um, yeah, I, there's, there's a lot of, there's a lot of books out there that are, that are wonderful and it, it becomes sort of a question of like, what do I have to read for work? <laughs> and, and when do I find, when do I find the time to read, you know, um, just for me, because I'm often, I mean, I'm very flattered whenever anyone sends me an, an early, you know, sort of copy of something asking for a blurb, that sort of thing. I, one of the last ones I got was just outstanding church of Marvels. Church of Marvels is not out yet. Um, and the author's name, of course, is escaping me again. But when Church of Marvels comes out, everyone needs to go read it instantly. Um, it's a historical fiction mystery crime um, set in Coney Island um, in the 1890s. And then it sort of moves to Manhattan. And it's back and forth with carnival um, folk who have been performing out on Coney Island um, on the boardwalk for years. And then, you know, these tragic events happen and, uh, and someone, someone goes missing and it's got multiple narrators. The voice is perfect. Church of Mar- Marvel is outstanding. So sometimes I'm, you know, sent things where I read them and I'm like, Oh my God, I'm so happy that I, <laughs> that I was just sent this. And then, you know, like other times I'm thinking to myself, well, I would really, you know, I would just, I would love to read the new ton of French, but I don't have time. <laughs> <laughs> So yeah, I I I marvel at the quality of of books that comes out that come out every year. I mean, obviously, America puts out more books than any other nation, uh, hands down. I mean, so there's there's just scores of great books that that are coming out constantly, and that's wonderful. But it also makes it a little bit difficult sometimes. Exactly. So, 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 what are what are you working on now? Have you started a new book? 
Well, um, <laughs> I I have if you if you if you if you don't want to talk about it, that's obviously fine. No, 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 no. Okay. Um, it's fine. The um, I have a book that's coming out in April of 2016 that's finished, and that's a standalone. Um, and it's called Jane Steele. Uh, so Jane Steele essentially is a a book about um, a young woman named Jane Steele who is reading Jane Eyre during the time period that Jane Eyre was having its heyday. It's um, 1850, the second edition, with the scathing preface to her detractors <laughs> has just come out. And uh, everyone's reading Jane Eyre, and the narrator of this book loves Jane Eyre. Um, and she's telling a very parallel story. She She has also had experience of, um, of being in a terrible household where no one wants her. Then she's sent to a terrible boarding school. Then, you know, she ends up at this mysterious house with this mysterious fellow, et cetera, et cetera. So it's, it's very parallel plot to, to Jane Eyre. And that's one of the reasons that she loves the book so much, but Jane Steele, I asked myself the question, what if a young woman were told over and over and over and over again, as Jane Eyre was told, uh, you're irredeemable, you're wicked, you're vile, you're, you know, completely amoral, and you are probably going to go to hell. What if instead of, as Jane Eyre did, saying, no, I have my own moral compass, I know I'm a good person. What if instead the girl said, mm, I could own that. <laughs> uh, <laughs> So it's essentially Jane Eyre meets Darkly Dreaming Dexter. She's a serial killer. Ah. But but only but uh you know the she kills people that you don't really want to be around. <laughs> <laughs> That's going to be the, Yeah, I mean it, so she's quite a sympathetic murderer. Um the end of the prologue is reader I murdered him. <laughs> <laughs> So it's a riff on Jane Eyre that um, goes along parallel lines, but uh, but way more fatalities. <laughs> <laughs> that's great. That's great. So that's what's out um, in 2016. Great. Well, again, we've been speaking with Lindsay Fay. Her latest novel, The Fatal Flame, has just been published. So go grab a copy today. And Lindsay, thanks for taking the time to do this interview. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of plan investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. 
There's Granger, offering professional grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.